0: Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church of Taylorville, Illinois. I hope this podcast stirs your desire for the things of God, and we hope that your faith in Christ will grow like never before. Now let's get into the podcast. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Uh, well, good, Frankie, me too. I know your voice. Uh, so uh, we 've been tricked and winners back. Have you guys noticed that on your way in? Yeah, I know, but uh, it 's good. God is good i don 't know if you were here last week, but we started uh, off in a series called Hope and Man did the Spirit of God move? Amen Spirit of God moved and i 'm just i 'm praying and believing that there will be more moves of the spirit like that we 'll see what God has in store for us, and we 'll see how we yield to to the Spirit at work in the room today. But before I even jump into this, I'd like to pray again. I know that Nate just prayed, but I just want to pray again and uh, and just kind of echo some of the things that he said. So if you would just indulge me and let's just pray together. Father God, we come to you today. And God, I pray that you would just, God, you would bless your word as, as it is read, as it is taught, as it is preached. And God, I know that, that I can get in the way of your work. So Lord, I just want to yield to the Spirit And I just want to be behind you, God, in whatever it is that you want to do in the room or even beyond this room um, today. So, God, I pray that you would just pray in faith believing that you're going to do a work today, that you're going to stir hearts and you're going to spur our affections for you and bring us in alignment with your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, now we are jumping into week two of our series called Hope, and the tagline for this series is the future is waiting. And that's the thing about hope, isn't it? Like, we can have hope, but yet we always have to, if we're going to actually maintain hope, true hope, it's the faith and belief that something better is coming, and something better is coming. Amen? Amen. And, you know, there are some, uh, some things going on in our world right now, I think, that would cause us to kind of whisper and kind of think that, that maybe God's not on the throne. But I want to remind you again, like I do quite often, God is on the throne. Amen? He's doing a work uh, in his church, outside of his church, drawing people to himself, just like Kristen got saved last week in this room. And God is still doing a work. He's still saving people. We can clap for that. I know sometimes you think you're rude if you clap over my voice. You're not being rude if you clap over my voice. I'm not offended. We can always applaud at any time the work of God. Amen? So that's what I believe firmly. I also see this, and maybe you feel some of this as well. The Western world that we live in is is on a campaign to remove God from the cultural center. Who's noticed that? Raise Raise your hand if you've noticed that. Like there is a, a, a march, but it is a foolish march, not a triumphant march, because the triumphant march is the march of God and those who are in alignment with God. And how, however, it, there's, with the rise of socialism, with the rise of, of demonic powers, I think, going on all around us and with the media against us, not bringing out the message of hope, not bringing out the message of peace, stirring up controversy, it's hard to, to disagree with that if you're paying attention to what's going on in the world. And then throw on top of that what happened in early October when uh, Israel was attacked, and all that's still happening there, and the war there that's happening with Hamas, which preempted me to go into a three week series to do a deep dive on Israel, Hamas, and the second coming of Christ. But hopefully, at the end of that series, you had a sense of like, God is still working. God is still working. And however, when all that happened in Israel, there's an amazing thing that happened in the church and outside the church. People paused for a moment in, in that time period, that week specifically, right after uh, the violence occurred from Hamas, the violent evil that they are. As soon as that happened, people started asking questions. And then even people who aren't even Christians, who don't even believe all what we believe, they started talking about the coming of Jesus, which is so confusing to me. Because if you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, and yet what is your hope in? You're like, yep, he's coming back. I'm like... Well, how do you know? Because if you're not reading the Bible, if you don't have the spirit of God, so it's just kind of interesting when we're in the middle of, of something that's that adversity like that on a global stage, even people who aren't Christians tend to pay attention. And they, they tend to pay attention to things outside of this world and grasp for hope. The passage that we're gonna get into today is, is not that dissimilar from the world that we're in right now. In Micah, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read those, and I'm really going to camp out on verse 2. But 1 through 5 is going to give us just a good runway and, and kind of sense as to what Micah is in the middle of. Micah is an Old Testament prophet, and he's prophesying near about he's prophesying at the same time as Isaiah. So the time that, that Micah, the actual book that we would read from here in, from chapter 5, was written was in between 700 in 735 B.C., so before the birth of Christ. And, and what is uh, being talked about from Micah's vantage point, as he's, he even himself, and I'll just kind of give you this a little extra, in chapter 3 of Micah 3, uh, yeah, chapter 3, Micah 3, there you go, redundant, redundant. Um, Micah 3, verse 8 says this, Micah is saying this about himself. He says, But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Micah knew that he was standing in the gap in between God and God's people. He knew that he had a holy and anointed place as he's standing, bringing the message of God to God's people. And the reason why he's bringing this message, it's one of hope, but it's also one of of just conviction of their sins, because there was a lot of injustice that was happening. There were rich people taking advantage of poor people. There was too much political and governmental control. Uh, There were people who didn't have uh, equality in a sense of just being treated as they should, just as being human beings. So God sends a prophet and God has a long history of sending a prophet throughout the Old Testament. I still believe that he's still sending prophets today doing this in our day and age, but God sent a prophet and his name was Micah to bring a message, a stern message of deliverance and hope, but also of one of repentance. And Micah was filled with the spirit. So this just isn't some, some wild man claiming things wildly instead He's a man who believes he's on a mission from God to do the work of God. Verse one through five. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. He will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, "'Though you are small among the clans of Judah, "'out of you will come for me one who will rule, be ruler over Israel, "'whose origins are from old, from ancient times. "'Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time "'when she who is in labor gives birth, "'and the rest of, her, of his brothers return to join the Israelites.'" Verse four, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. This is what is referred to as a messianic prophecy about Jesus. But just as I've said numerous times over the last couple months, There are near and far fulfillments. The near fulfillment that's being talked about in verse 1 is the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. And what Micah is telling the people of Jerusalem about is he says, There is an attack that's coming and God is bringing this attack upon you because of your disobedience. And the the ruler who would do this in in about 170 or 80 years is a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And, And God is sending Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, to go in to bring the people of God to a place of repentance. I know that's a hard pill to swallow because you would think, well, if God loves these people, why is he allowing this pagan ruler to go in? Is because God wants their hearts to be right. So God chooses because God can choose to do what he wants to do. He's not bound by time and space like we are. He chooses to send Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, to go in to lay siege to Jerusalem to wake the people of God up so they would have to suffer a little, but God would provide a remnant within that area that the whole area would not be wiped out. There will be a remnant of people who truly believe because God promised that this would be so. But then there's an interesting thing at the back end of verse 1. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. This is actually a prophecy itself. I'm not going to dig into, but you can write this source down. That comes directly from Matthew 26, 67, and 68, prophesying how Jesus was actually smacked upon the face. In verse 3, uh, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of the brothers return to join the Israelites. This is a, a prophetic message connecting Matthew 24, verses 1-8 through eight, that I preached through during the, uh, the, the uh, Israel Hemos and Second Coming of Christ series and specifically the the terminology there that may have landed in your mind is this idea of labor pains or labor gives birth and Jesus would actually talk about the labor pains what would be what we could see and observe in our world that would be indications that the second coming of Jesus is is on its way or it's it's here those examples would have been uh, right from Matthew 24 the Wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation. Uh, there would be uh, apostasy. There would be false prophets. There would be deception. There would be kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines. In verse 4, it says, He will stand and shepherd his flock. This talking directly about Jesus, because Jesus is the good shepherd, is what it says, it's what Jesus said in John 10 11 and 14. That he, Jesus, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. We are to be spreading the gospel message to the ends of the earth. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That we, as followers of Jesus, are on mission. We've been commissioned by God to share the good news with the world around us. We all are on mission. Uh, irregardless of your age or the stage of life that you find yourself in, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Christ, you are to be making other disciples, replicating other disciples through your life and through your witness with words and with actions. In this, this verse, in verse 5, it says, uh, at the beginning of verse 5, and it says, and he will be their peace, talking about the fulfillment of of all things, once we've done our part and once we've shared uh, is what we're going to and after the last Gentile comes in, I shared the, with this in the, uh, two series ago, when the last Gentile's in and then you see now the remnant of Israel coming in, the believing group of Israel comes in and then the second coming of Jesus. And he will be their peace, talking about the fulfillment. Let's back up some to verse two. I intentionally... Neglected verse two, because we're going to spend the rest of our time there. This again, talking about Jesus himself. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Though the people of God were hearing about the consequences of their actions. They knew that judgment was coming. They also had hope because God always leaves an ember of hope with his people. It's interesting. Several years ago, I went camping with my kids. I used to take my kids out and just have some, some uh, just dad time and we'd go out and we'd go camping for a couple days. And this particular trip, we went out to a state park in Jupiter, Florida, which is Cardinal Spring Training for those of you who root for the best team in the major leagues, the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, so just thought I'd throw that out there in Jupiter, Florida, but that's where the state park was. And so I took my kids there, and, and it was an amazing time. There was mountain bike trails all over the place. It was super dangerous. You moms would have been nervous. I had a blast, and my kids did, and we all came back in one piece but you know how it is when you go anywhere with your kids and it's just one adult and kids. Some of you, like that's how you raise raising kids. I, I, feel, I feel for you. But like on this trip, I was uh, by myself with the kids and I thought I had, had everything set. And we had spent the day riding bikes and we're hot and sweaty. And we go back to camp and, um, you know, and everything seems to be set. And then we look around and dad promised marshmallows, but yet dad didn't get marshmallows. You know, hello, kids, campfire camping, ultimate fail. So I was like, no problem. We'll leave. So we left the, the state park after all of that. And we made a little adventure to some, I don't know what it was, this little market thing, got our marshmallows, went back to uh, the campsite. We had all our food and marshmallows and it was the best of times. And, and you can just imagine, I was just exhausted by the end of that. From doing everything and all the "hey dad" questions, right? Like I was just, I was kind of done and over it. So we had a campfire. It took took uh, two buckets, five-gallon buckets, and put the fire out. So I thought, and then we just went to bed. And then, shockingly, in, in the middle of the night, apparently, the fire resurrected because it was all back. And I thought I put the fire out. It was steaming, doing its thing in the little fire ring. And then literally in the middle of the night, it came right back up, and the fire was exactly about about exactly how it was when we went to bed. Such a great visual illustration because sometimes we snuff out the things of God, and sometimes God brings a a sense of uh, adversity to us. And even in the midst of that adversity, there's still an ember of hope even in the midst of I did something wrong or I should have done this or I should have said this, even in the midst of of our consequences, God still gives us an ember of hope. And that's what God is giving to the people right here in, in Micah 5. He's giving them hope. He's saying, sure, there's consequences, but there's gonna be a Savior coming. There's gonna be a Messiah coming that Jesus, the Christ would be coming. Jesus Messiah would be coming. And he's gonna come from this little bitty place such a small, insignificant place called Bethlehem. And I thought to myself, well, how can I explain how small Bethlehem is? Because if you're filling in blanks, that's the place of Jesus' birth. Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the, the word itself means house of bread. Who doesn't love bread? I don't love carbs, but I love bread. And... What's interesting is Bethlehem, means the, it means the house of bread, but Ephrathah means fruitfulness. So it's like talking about this area, but yet Bethlehem was such a small and insignificant place that it wasn't actually named as one of the hundred cities that were allotted lands from Joshua 24 when they were given lands in that area throughout Judah. It wasn't even named because it was so small and insignificant. But how could, how could I explain the smallness of Bethlehem? I have some examples. Bethlehem is more podunk than Pawnee. There's an example. <laughs> Bethlehem is more minuscule than Mewikwa. Bethlehem is the type of area that the Google car would get lost. There you go. And Bethlehem was so small that you could gossip with a single text message. There you go. That's the last one I have. You get the idea. It's really small. And yet this place that is really small and was, seemed to be so insignificant was the place that our Savior was born. And it was also, Bethlehem was also David's homeland. That was his area. This would be significant in the, in the nativity story as to why Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem. Because as what we'll see in just a couple of moments in Luke 2 is because there was a census and everyone had to go back to their homeland, back to their people to, to basically be registered for the census. So this would be important. And this would play out very shortly. I would like for you to go to the right in your Bible to what I consider the, uh, one of the original Ancestry.coms. To Matthew 1 and Matthew 1 tells us we're just going to look at six verses here and just go over some some names that are very peculiar some of those you'd have heard of though and I, I just want to look briefly at the genealogy of Jesus going from Abraham to King David verse 1 Matthew 1 a record of the genealogy Of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. By the way, if you're ever reading these names, if you just go fast and do it with confidence, nobody will even know you did it wrong. So I'm counting on that right now. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, his mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. How would I do? You don't know. That's fine. We'll go anyway. You see, the reason why I shared this is not only is this the, the genealogy of Jesus, there's also a connection as to why in Luke 2, just want to tie some things together in the Bible for you, in Luke 2, a common uh, passage that's read about from just the nativity story itself is uh, when Jesus, baby Jesus, infant Jesus... And Mary and Joseph left Nazareth to go into Bethlehem. It just said, or I just read in Matthew 1 that Jesus came from the line of David, which means that they had to go back to their homeland. They had to go back to their homeland, which would have been Bethlehem. Uh, Luke chapter 2 says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Of course, this is, this is the birth of Jesus. This is the birthplace of Jesus. Jesus. There's another corresponding passage. Matthew 2, 1 and 2 says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. One of the goals I have within this sermon today is to show you from a a bunch of different scriptures they actually all work together to prove and to show us the significance of what Micah is talking about in Micah 5.2 and the birth of Jesus. And that, that the birth of Jesus was prophesied hundreds of years before he came to earth. And he not only did he come to earth just to prove a point that he's God, but he came to earth to save sinners like you and I. And this would be the core message of Micah, which we'll get to shortly This message is not just saying these certain things about Jesus. But to point to Jesus as being the deliverer. Which leads me to this. The purpose of Jesus' birth. The purpose of Jesus' birth. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. See the purpose of Jesus' birth. Jesus came to seek and save that that which was lost, us, people, humanity, our fallenness. Luke 19, 10. Bethlehem's ruler would be devoted to the will of God. He, in a special and divine way, would be so connected to the Lord, and he would be walking and living in obedience to the Father. Jesus said this, For I've come down from heaven to do the will of God, who sent me not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I shall not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up on the, at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him shall have eternal life and raise them, Up at the last day. What does this mean? Part of what it means is Jesus died to save you. So if someone doesn't get saved, it's not because of Jesus. Because Jesus has done his part to saving you. So if the Holy Spirit is so moving in you, it is up to you to relinquish your control to God and ask him to save you. You see what the, the will of God is to see and save everyone, but that's not the plan of God. The will, and God, will of God and plan of God are two different things. Sometimes they're, they're, they, they, they align and sometimes they don't. The will of God is, as what Jesus just said, the Father's will is that he would come, that, that everyone would be saved. But yet the plan of God is all those times where you and I disobey or when someone is not going to be saved because they choose willful disobedience against God. Or because simply they are not of those who have pre- been predestined and called upon for salvation. That we looked at when we, several months ago, we did a deep dive in our series called Blessed, and we looked at those very hard hitting words that make some of us uncomfortable. Words like adopted or predestined or called. Talking about the foreknowledge of God. Jeremiah, he points to this great ruler, to Jesus, when he says, again, 700 or so years. He himself was a prophet uh, before the birth of Jesus. Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. You see, Jesus had to be amongst the people, and he had to be one of the people. Prophesied well in advance. And also, Jesus is still the absolute ruler of the church. Ephesians 1.22 says this, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That God placed all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything in the church. When, when we operate under the lordship of Jesus, we operate as if he is the ruler. We actually are part of the fulfillment of what Micah is talking about in Micah 5.2. That this ruler would be coming and now we're in the church age. The dispensation that we're in the middle of is the church age. Going out, sharing our faith, evangelizing, giving hope uh, to the hopeless around us and sharing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how people can be right with God. We actually are in, in part fulfillment of this when we operate under the lordship of Jesus Matthew 5.23 also echoes the same thing. Uh, Not Micah 5.23, excuse me, Ephesians 5.23. It says this, that Christ is the head of the church. There's an interesting and perplexing passage that talks about the the origins or the origin of Jesus. And John says it this way in John's gospel, John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word is Jesus, the Logos, that is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So John knew what Micah was talking about. John knew that that Jesus was his origin was from of old, of ancient. John knew that Jesus is the the ruler. Micah knew that Jesus is the ruler, that the Messiah is the ruler. Jeremiah knew that there's a ruler. We who are followers of Jesus Christ are still operating and our lives are governed as Jesus being our ruler, as being our king. If we're part of the kingdom of God, he is our king. He is our ruler. In kind of a comical way, I stress the smallness of the, of the city of Bethlehem. In our day and age, we, we got, get lost in some things because in our culture, uh, what's typically believed is we have to go to a big, to a big city because in a big city, that's when, that's when big things happen. You can get popular or famous or rich or whatever it is that you want. It's like go to the big city. It was, it's, it was the same way growing up here, and it was the same way when we lived in Dublin, Georgia. It was always the next city was going to offer them something. And yet, it's amazing to me that our Savior would be born in a place so small like Bethlehem. In a place that was, in that day and age, in the middle of nowhere. But small doesn't always mean insignificant, does it? Small doesn't mean insignificant. I had an example of this over the weekend Went to a, a visitation and funeral. And the pastor, he he had pastored the, the church in a, a really small town, not even a city, a town, but a glorified village. And he had pastored there for 10 years and he left. But yet there was just such a sincerity. I could just tell when he was talking, I was like, he loved those people. And the church was really small. And the village is really small, but I, I was just so rest assured. And Marla and I, as we're, as we're driving away, I was like, the difference that that pastor made in that small area was not insignificant. It was big. I could just tell that it was big. I could tell that it was big because his love for Jesus was big, because his love for the people were big. And although, if you were just to look at the at the building that, that housed the church, the assembly of people, you'd say, well, what could happen there? But I just, I just believe that there were some amazing things that happened there. Because small doesn't always mean insignificant. Just like bigger doesn't always mean better, does it? I had another example of this for you uh, baseball fans. You've probably heard of the name Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb is one of the best hitters of all time. He was really known as the best hitter of all time. He was one of the first inductees into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And so we were, we were up in North Georgia. And as we're coming down from North Georgia, we're going back home. We just drove through this small, 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 small place called the Narrows, Georgia. It's not even a city. There's no known population. It's literally out in the middle of nowhere. Well, that is the birthplace of Ty Cobb. And I remember driving through and, and just looking, and I'm like, the birthplace of Ty Cobb. Like, that was, that was just such, an, a, that was such a, a mind-bending thing for me because somebody who made such a difference in baseball, and yet I'm driving through this town of which there was no known population. There was nothing saying anything about it, and yet something happened back then with him playing baseball coming out of this really small town, and for some reason that has been in my mind for quite some time. Small doesn't always mean insignificant. Sometimes I think we, we look at ourselves and we think, well, God, I'm just too small to be used. I'm too small. I'm too I'm too insignificant. I'm too broken. I'm too ashamed of what I've done. I can't I can't shrug my past. I just can't get it together. And God if I can't get it together then I'll never be trusted with big things. You see God will use the small and unexpected to revolutionize the world. If you read the New Testament you see this. You see Peter like you see people like Peter, James, John and Andrew, they're fishermen. If you go to the Old Testament you see a guy by the name of Amos who was a fig farmer. I didn't even know it existed by the way. He was a fig farmer. It's not easy to say. He was also a shepherd. That's easier to say. Of course, David was a shepherd boy, become king, a man after God's own heart. Timothy was a bit fearful. The judges were Samson. I'll say warrior, but he was a lot of other things too. Gideon, a farmer. Jephthah, he was an outcast. Uh, Job, he was just a livestock and landowner. And then you have Jesus, who obviously revolutionized, changed the absolute world, changed the way that we view history and the way that we count time born in a small and insignificant place called Bethlehem. But the smallest of babies would change the world. Would change the world. Not only does small not mean insignificant, small doesn't mean insufficient. Let this be an inspiration and a hopeful message to you. Jesus said this in Matthew 17, verse 20 and 21. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Of course, Jesus is speaking figuratively and he's talking about the fact that although a mustard seed is so small, It can grow into something much bigger than what it is. And he says that even if your faith is small, you can pray to the God uh, of the universe. And though your faith may be small, the results of that that faith and that prayer-filled faith will be large, will be significant, can change destinies. What might that mean? That means that if you're a praying mother and you're praying about a prodigal son or a daughter, that means you need to keep praying even if you're on your, your last little ember of hope that that child will ever return or your family will ever be right or, your, or, or what, will, what will happen or what did happen in the midst of that relationship could ever be restored, even if you just have an ember of hope, keep believing because if you have faith as small as a mustard seed and you go to the God who can, he looks beyond what you can't do and to believe in what he can do and he can make things right. Believe, pray, ask, seek, knock, and don't give up. Pray persistent prayers. What does that mean? That means if you're waiting on a certain outcome to happen and you haven't had the result, and you've, you have believed that God is, is doing a work, and yet it just hasn't come into fulfillment, keep believing, keep praying, keep seeking, keep worshiping, worship while you wait. Don't stop. Don't let that ember of hope go away. Fan that ember. Stoke that ember. Throw some kindling on that ember. Sure, you've done some things that you thought, you know what, I can't be used of God anymore. Satan is taking you to the woodshed, so to speak, and he's just beat you up, but he's beat you up for too long. He's beat you up for too long. Your life is not defined by your worst day. Your life is not defined by what you did over that period of time that you regret. That doesn't define your life. What defines your life is what did you do when you heard about Jesus? That's what defines your life. What did you do when you heard about Jesus? What did you do when you heard about the God-man who came to earth and he died on the cross for your sins, what did you do with that knowledge? What did you do when the Spirit of God spoke to you in your mind and impressed upon your heart and you had the heaviness in the, middle of that, in the middle of that sermon in that series and you were sitting in that church service and you had that heaviness, what did you do? Did you just sit in your seat just wallowing in that or did you actually give it to Jesus at the altar? What did you do when, when the Holy Spirit spoke to you? Were you like Kristen who didn't even know why she was coming forward but yet she came forward and she gave her life to Jesus? She just needed somebody to meet her at the front to to bring about the word of God and help her understand what was going on spiritually and she got radically saved. Is that your story? See, you're not defined by what you did on your worst day or in that time period that you regret, you ultimately are defined by what did you do with Jesus? Did you just put him away as some, some figure in history? Some ancient passage from some old crusty men? They just wrote it in a book and it probably wasn't right, definitely not inspired by God. Well, if that's where you put Jesus, you just put him up on a shelf with all of the other historical figures, you're going to be sadly disappointed because those are going to be a day of reckoning for everyone. And whether or not we we have submitted ourselves to Jesus, we will all stand before Jesus. And we will stand before Jesus one of two things happen. We will stand before Jesus and he will, he will invite us in to be in relationship with the Father and we will live in glory or he will say, apart from me, I never knew you. What did you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Would you stand?